Thank you for listening to Pastor Sean's Bible Study Teaching Podcast from Emmanuel Baptist Church in Sterling, Colorado. This lesson was recorded during our Wednesday night adult seminars. For more information on Emmanuel Baptist Church, please visit our website at www.ebc-online.org. Now here's Pastor Sean. So we may not get through tonight's material. On my notes here, I've got almost... 15 pages of notes, which normally I won't get that far, but the past couple of weeks we've been not, we've getting it done early. So I've covered almost everything there is to cover about Abraham tonight, but with that being said, we may not get there. So we're in the middle of Hebrews chapter 11, and so far, I want to just draw your attention back to verse um, 1. Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen, for by it the people of old receive their commendation. And so this whole repetition of by faith, by faith, and if you guys remember, it's acting on the basis of faith or having an active faith. Um, and so he's going to start giving us the example of these Old Testament saints and these Old Testament people that, that acted on faith. And we looked at Abel, who had a better sacrifice than Cain. We looked at Enoch who walked with God and pleased God. And we looked at Noah last week and how he was a preacher of righteousness and he built the ark. And now we get to Abraham, which if you think of the main character in the Old Testament that's equated with faith, um, it's the character of Abraham. So let's just read verses 8 through 12. This is the first unit of thought regarding Abraham. Hebrews 11, 8 through 12. By faith or acting on the basis of faith, Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to a place that he was to receive as an inheritance. And he went out, not knowing where he was going. By faith, he went to live in the land of promise, as in a foreign land, living in tents with Isaac and Jacob, heirs with him of the same promise. For he was looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. By faith, Sarah herself received power to conceive, even when she was past the age, since she considered him faithful, who had promised. Therefore, from one man, and him as good as dead, were born descendants as many as the stars of heaven, and as many as the innumerable grains of sand by the seashore. So if we could characterize the faith of Abraham in this section, it would be characterized by this statement. Authentic faith is being fully convinced that God is able to do what He's promised. Okay? Now, there's a commentary that Paul gives on Abraham's faith in Romans chapter 4, verses 20 through 21. Speaking of Abraham, he said, No distrust made him waver concerning the promise of God, but he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God, fully convinced that God was able to do what He has promised. Okay. So, what words do you see there about Abraham? They're just in Romans. He was fully convinced he did not waver, but he trusted God's promise. And so, we have to ask the question, okay, what did God promise? Well, there's a lot of things God promised Abraham. <clears throat> but let's just look at three descriptions of faith of Abraham from these passages of Scripture, verses 8 through 12. Three descriptions of faith that illustrate that he was fully convinced that God is able to do all that he promised. Number one, first of all, 
Faith is evidenced by an immediate, and you may want to circle the word immediate, immediate obedience, even when we don't have all the answers. Now, you don't get this from your English translations. Whoops, let me go back here. You don't get this from your English translations, but the way it's constructed in the original language really tells us that Abraham obeyed immediately without any hesitation. By faith, Abraham obeyed. That word obeyed there really means he obeyed quickly. He obeyed immediately. There was no hesitation. Notice what it says. Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to a place he was to receive an inheritance. And he went out not knowing where he was going. By faith, he went to live in the land of promise. Um, So he obeyed, he went, he went out. Think about all the verbs that are used here for obeyed. Abraham went out. Again, these are active, energetic words that show that his faith is more than just lip service, but that it actually was concrete action that responded to God's word. Now, it's interesting What does it say there? Abraham went not knowing where he's going. That's interesting. Where did Abraham live? He was from a place called Ur. Ur of the Chaldees, modern day Iraq. Now, Abraham, we find out from Joshua that Abraham's family were moon worshipers. So when you think about Abraham for a moment, he was living in pagan idolatry on the backside of nowhere as a moon worshiper. And we also know that he was probably pretty wealthy and had you know flocks and herds and family. So everything in Abraham's life was wrapped up in Ur. His family, his possessions, his identity, his money, his job, his religion. And it's totally pagan. Had Abraham ever heard about Yahweh, the God of... Well, he wasn't the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob yet. (laughs) Had, Had Abraham ever heard about who the true Jehovah God was? No. But God came and royally messed up Abraham's life. And said, Abraham, I want you to go to a place that I will show you. I'm not going to really tell you exactly where it is or what it's like. Just go. Now, how many of you would obey? I'm not telling you really where you're going. I'm not going to give you a lot of directions. But the bare fact that it's God telling you to do it, you should do it. And do it immediately. All right, let's go to Genesis chapter 12, 1 through 5, and let's see this in action. So we're going to be jumping back and forth between Genesis and Hebrews. So keep your finger in Hebrews or keep your swiped finger, however you do it. Um, And let's go back to Genesis 12. This is really the first time we come across Abraham in the Genesis narrative. His genealogy is given at the end of chapter 11 with, with Terah's descendants. But... Basically, you've got right there in in Genesis chapter 12, verse 1 through 5, it says this, Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. Okay, so where was he going? Abraham, leave Ur, 
<clears throat> leave your family, leave your house, leave your pagan moon worshiping idolatry. Get up, pack your family up, and go to the land I will show you. I will show you. This is before GPS, before Rand McNally maps. But notice the, the blessing. I, this is God's seven blessings here. I will make you a great nation, number one. I will bless you personally, number two. I will make your name great, number three. You will be a blessing, number four. I will bless those who bless you, number five. Him who dishonors you, I will curse, number six. And number seven, in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So Abram went as the Lord had told him, and Lot went with him. Abram was 75 years old when he departed from Haran, and Abram took Sarai his wife, and Lot his brother's son, and all their possessions that they had gathered, and the people they had acquired in Haran, and they set out to go to the land of Canaan. When they came to the land of Canaan, Abraham passed through the land to the place of Shechem, to the Oak of Morah. At that time the Canaanites were in the land. Okay. How old is Abraham? He's 75 years old. He was having a pretty established life. Now, if you're 75 years old, you're pretty established, right? You're established in your job. You're established with your family. You've got roots. Everything that Abraham found security in was an Ur, his hometown. And all of a sudden, God sovereignly comes to Abram and says, Listen, out of all the people, all the pagan moon worshipers that are on the the face of the earth, I'm choosing you and your family to pack up and leave, and I'm going to go start a great nation out of you. Now, if you had not ever heard God speak before, and you didn't know who Yahweh was, what would be your first reaction? Say, what are you talking about, Willis? (laughs) Say, what? What is going on here? You see, here's what true faith is. True faith is immediate obedience when you don't have all the answers. How many of us want all the answers before we're going to obey? That's not true faith. David Platt, in his book, Radical, many of you probably read it, I think about five or six years ago, we we went through this as a study when the book first came out. He makes an interesting statement. He says, quote, As a Christian, it would be a grave mistake to come to Jesus and say, let me hear what you have to say, and then I'll decide whether or not I like it. If you approach Jesus this way, you will never truly hear what he has to say. You have to say yes to the words of Jesus before you even hear them. You have to say yes to the words of Jesus before you even hear them. So that's the type of faith Abraham had. A faith that obeyed with immediate, immediacy, immediate faith, when he didn't have all the answers. That's, what, that's the kind of faith that pleases God. But what type of creatures are we? I want to have the answers. I want to know the future. I want to have it all laid out for me. I want the blueprint. I want the, you know, the 3D hologram to come show me the future. However God communicates it, I want to know. And I'm not going to go dare do it unless I've got all the details. Because some of us are anal planners, aren't we? And we want to have everything, all of our ducks in a row. And sometimes God comes to you and says, Listen, I want you to obey simply because it's me asking you to obey. And that should be good enough. And I want you to obey immediately. Okay, so that's, that's, that's number one about Abraham's faith. Number two, faith is evidenced by a patient expectation for our true 
and final home. What does it say there? Let's go back to Hebrews. Okay, so let's go back to Hebrews. Hebrews chapter 11, verse 9. What does it say? By faith, or acting on the basis of faith, active, energetic faith, he went to live in the land of promise as in a foreign land, living in tents with Isaac and Jacob, heirs with him of the same promise. What does it say Abraham did? He lived in the land of promise as a foreigner, living in tents with his family as a sojourner, a temporary resident. Abraham never really put down roots. Go back and read Genesis. Does Abraham ever settle? He's, he's, he's like going down to Egypt. He's coming back up here. He's going over here. He never puts down roots. But what did God promise him? You're going to have this land. Question, did Abraham ever receive the land? A small piece. He was buried there. But did the ultimate promise of him inheriting the land of Canaan, the promised land, did he ever realize that in his lifetime? No, it really actually wasn't until almost like five or six hundred years later when Joshua took them in. But what was he looking for? We'll talk about that in a moment. Abraham lived in portable tents as an alien, a sojourner, a foreigner. But what was he looking forward to? Look at what it says there, verse 10. He was looking forward to the city, the city that has foundations whose designer and builder is God. What's a tent a picture of? Does anybody here want to live in a tent permanently? What is a tent a picture of? A tent is, we're going to go on a camping trip, and we may stay here two days, and that's about all. We're getting uncomfortable here. We don't have our creature comforts. We put down stake tents, or tent stakes, and we're going to kind of stay in this, you know, this temporary dwelling place. As opposed to a tent, what does a city represent? Stability. Stability permanence, something lasting, something solid. Okay? In verse 10, the key word is he was looking forward. He was looking forward to the city. In the, in the original language, this whole idea of looking forward conveys the idea that he was continually and constantly looking or longing or waiting with great expectation for a day when he would no longer be a nomad, but would live in a city. So, basic easy question. What is the city that Abraham was patiently waiting for? Was it a literal city? What's the city? Heaven... The new Jerusalem, the, the new heavens, the new earth, this city would not be this city in heaven would not be like a tent, something that can be blown away, or that is portable, but a place of solid stability and permanence permanence, it would have foundations. No tent stakes, but streets of gold. And who's the one that builds it? Who's the architect of the city? Who's the designer of the city? God. Okay, so let's just talk about Abraham's faith here. Abraham was an alien. Okay, and we know what an alien is. He's, he's a sojourner. 
He's a nomad. He never put down roots. He was just passing through. Let's talk about comparison to us. Are we not living as resident aliens on planet Earth? We are strangers in a strange land. We are foreigners. This is not our true and abiding home. We're just passing... That's a really bad way to spell it. We are passing through... Passing through. We're passing through, awaiting our final home, and as such, we shouldn't put down too many roots. We shouldn't be so enamored with this world that we are so attached to the stuff here that we don't long and wait patiently with eager expectation for our true and final home. Easier said than done, right? Think about the, think about the dichotomy we've talked about. Abraham went to a place he didn't know where he was going. And once he got there, he never really lived there. But he was looking forward to a place that he would be, and he got that place in heaven, and that was where he was truly looking forward to. So he never really put down roots. So let me ask you a question. Are you putting down roots on earth? Or should you be putting down roots? That's a hard thing to think about, isn't it? Because what's this whole world wrapped up in? Everything that we can see, everything that we put our hope in. Oh yeah, easily. But Philippians 3.20 says, Our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. 1 Peter 2.11 says, Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. Kent Hughes, he's a pastor, he's retired now, um, but he was the pastor of, of um, College Church in Wheaton, Illinois. And um, he had a great statement. He says, it's a dangerous thing when a Christian begins to feel permanently settled in this world. Permanently settled. So are you living for that day? Abraham was living for that day. He wasn't living for this day. He was looking forward to the city. Let me tell you what the new city is. What is that city? Revelation 21, 1-4 tells us. I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be His people, and God Himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain any more, for the former things have passed away. That's what Abraham was looking forward to. So, let's recap. Number one, Abraham's faith shows us that he obeyed immediately without all the answers. Abraham, pack up and go to a place I'm going to show you. And I'm not going to give you all the details. Just go because it's me asking you to do that. Number two, faith is looking forward to the city, looking forward to heaven, not putting down roots here. But also, thirdly here, faith is evidenced by a hopeful belief 
in a faithful God. Now, this is where the text gets very tricky as to the interpretation. I don't think the ESV got it right, surprisingly. I think the NIV actually got it right, which is kind of surprising. Is this text talking about Abraham's faith or is it talking about Sarah's faith? Who's the example here? Is it Abraham or is it Sarah? The ESV makes it sound like Sarah. It's Sarah's faith. Okay? But let me say that I believe the NIV actually here gives the best translation, and I believe it's addressing Abraham as the primary person here, not Sarah. Let me give you the you know, I've got the NIV up here. Um, Hebrews 11, 11. By faith, Abraham, even though he was past age and Sarah herself was barren, was enabled to become a father because he considered himself faithful who had made the promise. So the, the NIV makes it Abraham the one having faith. Look at the ESV. The ESV says, By faith, Sarah herself received power to conceive, even when she was past age, since she considered him faithful who had the promise. I mean, they're exact opposite, exact opposite interpretations. One takes Sarah, one takes Abraham. Now, almost all modern scholars hold to the position that it's talking about Abraham even reputable teachers like John MacArthur and others. So I'm not going to get, go into all the technical details of the Greek grammar and all the things, but I will tell you this. The literal translation for power to conceive literally means to deposit sperm. Now, we're all adults in here. Hopefully everyone here knows that this refers to the male part and reproduction, not the female. In addition, the book of Genesis, Sarah is not an example of faith, really. When you think about Sarah, she laughs at God. When he tells her she'll have a son in her old age, she tries to manipulate the situation with Hagar to sleep with Abraham to speed things up. So, although Sarah was barren and it was a miraculous birth, I think the writer of Hebrews is talking about Abraham was the one who had the faith that even in their old age, where she was past childbearing age and he was past maybe the... (laughs) I won't say that, but you know what I mean... Um, They were past the age that God would still give them the ability to have an heir. So George Sweeting, I love this quote, a past president of Moody Bible Institute, once gave this definition of optimism. Optimism is when an 85-year-old man marries a 35-year-old woman and moves into a 12-room house next to an elementary school. (laughs) Now, Now, for Abraham... It was more than just optimism. It wasn't like, you know what? I'm 100 and she's 95 or however old she was. We're, we're going to do this. We're going we're gonna, to we're gonna reproduce because we're, we're spring chickens and we, you know, we're virile. We're in the height of our age. No. What does it say there? The ESV says she considered him faithful who had promised. The NIV says he considered himself faithful who had promised. The key word there is considered. That's a key word. He considered God faithful. He didn't doubt God's faithfulness. He took God at His word. He considered it, meaning it wasn't blind faith, but true faith in the character and promises of God. He knew that God was faithful just because that's just how God is. And look at verse 12. Therefore, from one man, and him as good as dead were born descendants as many as the stars of heaven and as many as the innumerable grains of sand by the seashore. It came true, right? 
Abraham and Sarah had Isaac. Isaac had Jacob. Jacob had 12 sons. Well, some grandsons in there. The 12 tribes of Israel became, by the time of Moses, over 2 million people. And to the day that the writer of Hebrews is talking about this, there are numerous, numerous thousands and millions of descendants from this one man, Abraham, who was past childbearing age, and his wife was past childbearing age. Now, we have the benefit. Here's the thing that we always have to remember, guys. When we talk about Hebrews chapter 11, what, do the, what benefit do we have? We know the story. We've read the story. We, we, get to, we read these Bible stories. But for the people that this first happened to, this was the first time it happened to them. That's faith because if you're, if you're that old, would you consider God being able to do what He promised He could do? God fulfilled the promise through this one man who was as good as dead and his barren wife that the nation of Israel was birthed into millions of people. And not only those who are Israelites or Jewish, but also those who are believers in Christ are the offspring and descendants of Abraham. When it talks about the descendants as numerous as the stars in the heavens and the sand on the seashore, don't just think of Jews or Israelites in that number. As a matter of fact, you're in that number. If you're a Christian, you, you, if you're a Christian, Abraham is your father. That's why we sing, Father Abraham had many sons. Many sons had Father Abraham. I am one of them and so are you. So let's just praise the Lord. Right arm, left arm, left arm. You know that old song you sing? Okay, it's an old song we used to sing as kids. And it's theologically accurate. We are Abraham's offspring. We are part of that promise. Now, how do I know that? Well, Romans chapter 4, 22 through 25 tells us. That is why his faith was counted to him as righteousness, but the words that was counted to him were not written for his sake alone, but for ours also. It will be counted to us who believe in him who raised from the dead Jesus our Lord, who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. We also find out in Galatians that we are the offspring of Abraham. So from this first part, when we look at Abraham, what, what, what can we characterize him? Number one, he obeyed God immediately and didn't have all the answers. Number two, he didn't put down roots on this earth but was looking forward to heaven. And number three, he fully was fully convinced that God was able to reproduce in him and Sarah after childbearing age and promised descendants. That's the kind of faith. So immediate obedience. So, so let's just make this personal. Do you obey immediately when you don't have all the answers? Do you put down roots on this earth or do you look forward to heaven and number three do you believe God's able to do something powerful in your life that can't be explained other than just the power of God that's faith okay now let's move on to part two unless there's any questions or comments or snide remarks on that okay let's move on to part two and Hebrews chapter 11, verses 13 through 16. This is the second unit of thought. He's still talking about Abraham, but he's kind of lumping in the patriarchs together. So let's read 13 through 16. These, and I think he's talking about Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, these all died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar, and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. For people who speak thus make it clear that they are seeking a homeland. If they had been thinking of that land from which they had gone out, 
they would have had the opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country, that is a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for He has prepared for them a city. All right. The writer is now giving us an interlude or a description of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, otherwise known as the patriarchs that we find in the book of Genesis. And he tells us all, he tells us that they all died in, in faith. It's interesting because up to this point, what has he been saying? By faith, by faith, by faith, Enoch pleased God. By faith, Noah built an ark. By faith, Abraham went out. By faith, by faith, by faith. But now, in their death, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, they died not by faith, but in faith. And the original language really means that it was according to their faith. And what this means is very important. They remained faithful to the end. They persevered. Salvation only comes to those who finish the race and persevere to the end. I was meeting with a, a lady today who's um, an elderly lady, and she made the statement, she's like, you'd think by now, as old as I am, I'd have it all figured out. <laughs> and I said, the fact that you don't is a good thing because it means you're still dependent upon God. And I said, here's something that happens. Sometimes in the, in the later stages of life, following Jesus can become the hardest. Because you're old and you want to coast. And it can be very easy to say, man, I did all that stuff when I was young. Let me just live however I want now. And so the thing about it is these patriarchs, they died in faith. That's important. It's not how you start the race, it's how you finish. That's the whole, that's the whole theme of the, of the book of Hebrews up to this point, is it not? Continue. Don't waver. Don't apostatize. Don't fall away. You, you, know, you, you can start out great... But if you don't die in faith, what do you die in? Unbelief. And what happens if you die in unbelief? Now, again, it doesn't mean that we have to somehow work our way into heaven by remaining faithful to the end in our own power and strength. What it means is if God has saved you, if God has chosen you, if God has given you the Holy Spirit, if He's truly saved you, God's going to give you the power to endure to the end. That's His promise. That's the perseverance of the saints. He gives you the power to persevere to the end. But, it's the, but the point is, we've got to persevere to the end. God will make sure we do it, but we still have to do it. And that's what it says here. They all died in faith. They persevered. They finished the race. And, and here's the verse that gives you great confidence. Philippians 1.6 I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. What does that verse not say? Let me, let me mistranslate that verse or misquote it. I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you, you need to make sure you complete it at the day of Jesus Christ. What does it say? He will bring it to completion. Why will God bring it to completion? Because he started it. And what God starts, he will finish. So if you're a true believer, God made you a true believer in the first place. Let's just talk about your salvation for a minute. Can I go on a little digression here? Sure, Sean, you've got the microphone and you've got the whiteboard and you've got the eraser and the PowerPoint. Okay, so let's talk about your salvation for a moment. From first to last, can we say salvation is of the Lord? 
that's what Jonah said when he came out of the belly of the fish. Salvation is of the Lord. Which means that in eternity past, in the doctrine of election, God chose you. That means at a point in time, God caused you to be reborn or God caused you to be born again. That means that at that time, God gave you the Holy Spirit. That means that at the very end, God's going to make sure you finish the race. God's going to make sure you get to heaven. So who chose you and elected you? Did you? No, God did. Who caused you to be born again? Did you? No. Who gave you the Holy Spirit? Did you? No. Who's going to cause you to finish the race and get into heaven? You? No. Salvation from first to last is a work of God. Now, this doesn't mean we're passive and we don't have a part to play in it. Obviously, we have faith and we exercise faith because this whole chapter is on exercising faith. But we just have to remember that in God's true chosen people, He's going to work out His faith in us to make sure we get to the end. Because think about it. If God chose you and God caused you to be born again and God gave you the Holy Spirit, do you think He's going to like fall off and let you not get to heaven? Unless you're an Arminian and you believe you can lose your salvation. But we don't believe that. We believe God does it from beginning to end. And I think that's the point here that the writer of Hebrews is saying is, listen, God start, and what Paul says, God started the work, He's going to finish the work, and He did that in Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Now, if you go back and read the story of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, were they, um, did they have the greatest character? Did they have the greatest um, track record at times? Jacob, you're not quite sure halfway through if this guy's going to make it. I mean, really, you kind of get mad at Jacob until like towards the end of his life when God gets a hold of him. And so it's not perfection. It's not that you don't have peaks and valleys. It's not that you don't have trying times and you struggle. The point is, is that the writer of Hebrews has made this point all the way through Hebrews. It's not who starts the race. It's how you finish. And if you're truly God's elect, he'll make sure you finish. You've got to persevere in faith. These all died in faith. But here's the amazing thing about these guys. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, they never received what God promised them in their lifetimes. What does it say there? Verse 13, these all died in faith. They persevered to the end. But what did they not receive? They Not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar, and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on earth. Did Abraham ever see that he was going to be a great nation? No. Did he ever see the boundary of the promised land being occupied by his people? Did Isaac ever see it? Jacob was a little closer because he had the 12 sons. But even then, it was just the beginning of the nation. They were promised these great things, but they never received it in their lifetime. Think about how frustrating that would be. It'd be like, God's promised you the greatest thing in the world and you never get to see it until you die. Now, what you get when you die is better than what you were promised on earth. What does it say there? It said they welcomed it from afar. The word welcomed is an interesting word. In the original language, it means to express happiness about the arrival of something or to get excited when you see someone that you, that you, have, that you overcome them with hugs and kisses. It's like, I haven't seen you in so long, and you give them hugs and kisses, and there's like, you know how like girls are all cheesy, and they see each other, ah, 
ah, you know, they get all crazy or whatever. It could be kind of like that. But they're not sappy going, ah, I haven't seen you in so long. What they're doing is they're like, oh, wow. What the writer of Hebrews is saying is that while on earth, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob got excited about their future home in heaven, even though they never received what God promised them in the here and now in the promised land. Because here's what happened. They acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. They acknowledged. That really means they confessed. What did they confess? This is not our real home. This is not where we belong. We're sojourners. We're, we're passers through. We're resident aliens. And like I said, in Genesis 23.4, Abraham says he's a sojourner. And an alien in the promised land. Genesis 28, Isaac is referred to as a sojourner or an exile. Genesis 47.9, Jacob is referred to as being a pilgrim or a sojourner. All throughout Genesis, they are looking for this city, this home, but they're exiles. Now, it's interesting. What does he say here? They were exiles on the earth. You notice the wording there at the end of verse 13? They were exiles on the earth. Now, what was really what God... Did God promise them the earth or did God promise them the promised land? Was it the whole earth? Were Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob promised the whole earth? No, they were promised the land of Canaan. But here it says, the writer purposely uses the word earth here. I don't think it's a mistake that he uses that because here's what he's saying about Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. They knew that the promised land was their final... They knew that the promised land was not their final home. should be not. They knew that the earth was not their final home. Their home was not a piece of real estate in Palestine. Their true home was in heaven, a city with foundations whose architect and designer is God. Now, verse 14 says, people who talk like this, People who talk like they're sojourners, the people who say that they're not putting down roots, people who say, I'm just passing through. What does he say there in verse 14? Make it very clear that they're seeking a homeland. They're seeking a homeland. In 14, the writer of Hebrews tells us that people who speak like they're strangers in a strange land and confess they're just passing through as resident aliens are truly seeking a homeland. And the word seeking is a very strong word in the original language. It means to diligently and intensely seek or strive or long for. They were intently longing. They were yearning for a literally a fatherland. Not just a homeland, but a fatherland. The land where they would live with their father in heaven. Now, verse 15 is interesting. What's the writer say in verse 15? If they had been thinking of that land from which they had gone out, they would have returned. Where's Abraham from? Ur. If, if all Abraham was thinking about was, man, I want to get back to Ur, he could have easily gone back to Ur. Nothing's stopping him from going back to Ur. That's where his family was. He could, don't you think halfway through this whole wandering thing, Abraham could have said, you know what? I've been wandering around this God-forsaken place for all this time. <laughs> My wife's getting old. We're not having kids. At least we had a family and a job and, a, and something back in Ur. Let's go back to Ur. At least we could trust the moon. It came up every 30 days. We'll go back and worship the moon. 
They were thinking, and what he's saying here in verse 15, if they weren't thinking about Ur or their native company where they came from, it would have been very easy to go back there. Abraham had every opportunity to return to the pagan city of Ur. But what did God do? Well, even before that, there's Haran. Yeah. I mean, you know, Haran's closer, so he could have even gone there if he wanted. Yeah. Because he had family there. Yeah, he could have even, yeah, he could have even gone. So what was in Ur? I kind of talked about that before. It was a city of pagan idolatry. If you go back and, and read history and look at some geog- geog- or some um, archaeology, there was a huge ziggurat temple to a foreign god. It was a culture of human sacrifices. Um, it was basically it was it was a moon worshiping pagan city. And the question would be, why in the world would Abraham ever want to go back to Ur? Ur stood for everything that was against the living God. I think he did know he was following the living God. Because, here's a, here, that's a great question. Did he know he was following the living God? In Genesis 12, when the Lord spoke to him and said, Abraham, go, that's the first time the living God ever spoke to Abraham. And what did he do? He obeyed. And every time God told him to do something, he obeyed. Now, there's sometimes he finagled things with Hagar. But for the most part, he obeyed. And so it's an act of sovereign grace for God to call Abraham out and so I, I do strongly believe Abraham knew he was following the living God because God, we can't really, I mean, God chose him and came to him in a very special way. Um, now let's think about us for a moment. How many times do we find it comfortable living in Ur? How many times do we want to go back to Ur? In other words, life would be so much easier for I wasn't a Christian. There's just too many temptations and distractions. And after all, we live in such a sinful world, it would be easy just to go back with the flow and to blend in and to set my affections on this world. Isn't that what's happening to the Hebrews in this book? Aren't they saying, man, it would be easy to go back to Judaism? Remember the two ditches that the Hebrews would fall into? One ditch was to go back to Judaism with all the rituals and the sacrificial system and and all that stuff. The other ditch would go into pagan mythology with all the Greek gods and goddesses and all the, you know, the false gods around them. So both of those are damning ditches. And the writer of Hebrews says, no, stay focused on the gospel. Christ is better. Jesus is better. Don't, don't drift. Don't, don't drift back into Judaism. Don't drift into pagan idolatry. Stay the course with the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so it's the same thing with us. And I don't want you to raise your hands, but how many times have you been tempted just to say, you know what, this whole Christianity thing isn't working Behold, I see all my friends, and they're having fun, they're being successful, they're getting away with murder, they're enjoying life. It would be so easy just to give up everything I believe about Jesus and go live like them for a while and enjoy the good life. I mean, don't we sometimes have those attitudes? Yes, Brent. I was listening to David McGee, and David McGee said this, his quote was, if we are not having tension between right and wrong and our in our life, then we have to question who we're really following. Yeah, yeah. If your if your life is easy and you're never tempted and you're never you never struggle with, um, here's the thing. Let me ask you a question: Do non Christians struggle with sin? And the answer is no. They sin, but they don't struggle with sin. You see what the difference is? 
they sin and they may have a guilty conscience for a while, but because they have not been born again, it's their nature to sin and they're going to sin. As Christians, do we struggle with sin? Yes. We struggle with sin because we're not supposed to do it. We know we're not supposed to do it. We've been born again and we have the battle between our flesh and, and between our new nature. And so we struggle with sin. And, and the reason why we struggle with sin is because we have the remaining flesh. But there's always that temptation to want to go back to the world. And what is the, um, I'm sorry, in verse 16, we see the true heart of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. What were they desiring? But as it is, they desire, what were they desiring? A better. Remember the key word in Hebrews is better? It shows up like 13 times. A better country. What kind of country? A heavenly one. They didn't want to be, they did not want to be wrapped up in this world. They looked for, they desired heaven. As great as the promised land was going to be to them, that was not the be all end all. It wasn't a piece of real estate in Palestine. That was not the be all end all for these guys. The writer of Hebrews says that wasn't their, that wasn't what they were looking forward to. As great as it was to have the, the real estate, that's not what they were looking forward to. They were looking forward to their home in heaven, their fatherland, to be with their father. And John tells us in 1 John 2, 15-17, Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that's in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and the pride and possessions is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. So John would say it this way. He would echo the writer of Hebrews and says, listen, don't love the world. Don't put down roots in the world. Don't find your stock in this world. Don't give in to the allurements of this world. The world's passing away. And you're just passing through this world as a sojourner. So don't put down roots. Look forward to the better country. Keep your eyes fixed on heaven. Keep your eyes and heart fixed on where it needs to be fixed. And Paul says the same thing in Colossians 3, 1 through 2. Paul says, If then you've been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above, where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on the things that are on earth. Over the past few weeks, we've been exploring what it means to have authentic faith. Okay? So, a faith like Abel, that worships God correctly and passionately. A faith like Enoch, that pleases God by walking with Him. A faith like Noah, that believes the unbelievable and stands alone in a world that mocks you. A faith like Abraham, that obeys immediately. And here we have a faith that looks away from the allurements of this world and focuses passionately for Christ in His heaven, a faith that longs for and yearns for and desires a better country, a heavenly one. Romans 12.2 Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good, acceptable, and perfect. Many of you are probably very familiar with the missionary Jim Elliott. He and his friends went to South America, Central America, to the Akua Indians. And um, he was speared to death 
in the prime of his life, and they all basically died there. And he was you know, a famous 20th century martyr. But here's this famous line that, that Jim Elliot, and I want you just to ponder what he had to say. He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain that, that which he cannot lose. Hmm. Let me say that again. He is no fool who gives. You're giving away what you can't keep to gain what you can never lose. What can you never lose if you're a true Christian? Salvation, heaven. What are we called to do? To give away our lives. What, 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 what hold does this earth have on us? God is in control. But I want you to notice something staggering at the end of verse 16. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for He has prepared for them a city. Hmm. What's the result of this type of faith? When, when your faith is on heaven, when your faith is not in this world, when you're longing for a better country, when you're a resident alien, when you're not putting down roots, when you're obeying God immediately, when you're keeping your eyes fixed on the future in heaven, when, when, you're, when you're doing all that, what's the result? It's interesting. What does it say about these men? God's not ashamed to be called their God. I don't think there's anything said like this in all the Bible. How many times do you see the phrase, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob? It's all over the place. It's one of the key ways that God identifies Himself to His people in the Old Testament. The God of your fathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Because of their faith, God is not ashamed to be called their God. That's why those guys' names are used all over the place. In other words, their type of faith actually pleases God. It brings God great pleasure to put a stamp of approval on these men because of their faith. Which leads to a great question. Here's the question for us. If you want God to be unashamed of being your God, then what must you do for Him to be unashamed of you? Some high moral achievement that God will be impressed some great act of heroism that will perk God's attention so that He loves you more. Helping an old lady cross the street so you can get brownie points with God. No. Now, here's the thing. Is God lacking in anything? Is God self-sufficient? Does God need us in any way? No, He doesn't need us, but it's an amazing statement there that it says God was not ashamed to be called their God. So what's the answer? How, how do we have the... Fa- what, what do we do to, to have God have that type of attitude towards us? And it's nothing really that we do. It all goes back to longing for Him, seeking Him, desiring Him, and yearning for Him. You see, yearning for God is not achieving anything for God. When you admit you're weak and when you seek Him and when you thirst after Him, you're not, you're not puffing your chest and saying, look what I'm doing for you, God. You're coming to God and saying, I'm needy, I'm helpless, I'm hopeless, I need you, I desire you, I want you, I can't live without you. And when you do things like that, does it draw attention to you or does it draw attention to God? 
So what is true authentic faith? It's longing for Christ, which results in new affections and desires. There's this easy believism theology that's become very popular today that turns becoming a Christian into a decision that one makes where they sign a card or raise a hand but doesn't result in true repentance and the new birth, which creates new desires. True saving faith means that when you come to Christ, you come to Christ because you want Christ. He is enough for you. You don't want Christ because of what He can give you. Bad gospel presentation. God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. If you just come to Jesus, He will make your life better. That void in your heart that you're missing, just ask Jesus in your heart and He will just fill you up and He'll give you peace and He'll give you happiness and He'll give you success. Is that the gospel? That's pretty self-centered, isn't it? Come to Jesus because He'll give you a better life. That's not the gospel. Come to Jesus because if you don't, you will die in your sins and spend eternity from Him and you need to repent because you're under His wrath and you need salvation. And come to Christ because Christ is enough. Now, obviously, Christ gives you blessings and Christ gives you um, His gifts and Christ uh, does improve your life in some sense and Christ does give you peace and joy. But that's not why you come to Christ. You come to Christ because He's Christ. American Christianity needs to understand that, don't they? Because what do we hear on the airwaves all the time? Come to Jesus because He will improve your life. He will give you a better life. He will make your life better. He will give you the peace you're lacking. What happens if you come to Jesus and you, don't, and you start having a really rough patch? Or you lose all your friends? Or you get persecuted? Or something bad happens to you? Then what, what have they promised you? Well, you promised me that if I came to Jesus, He'd make my life better. Now my life's worse. Thanks a lot. I don't want Him anymore. If this is what it's about, I'm, I'm walking away. And you have many false converts come into Christianity that way because somebody promised them on the front end that Jesus was there to improve their life. And when things go bad, when the cares of the world come in and choke the seed, it doesn't have roots and so it, it withers away. There's a parable about that. What has God promised us? Us. Well, listen to what Jesus has promised us in John 14, 1-6. Jesus says, Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again, and I will take you to myself, that where I am you may also be. And you know the way to where I'm going, Thomas said to him. Lord, we do not know where you're going. How can we know the way? And Jesus said to him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Are you ready to move to part three about Abraham? Yes, we are. Um, actually, that should be 17 through 19, not 7 through 19. Oh, it is 17 through 19. I, I misread it. All right, so let's keep moving. Yes. You know, Father Abraham oh, Father Abraham had many sons. I don't know where you're at oh, I thought it was seven. Many. You don't know Shariah got seven? No, I was thinking seven. In the song. Many. 
Father Abraham had many sons. Father Abraham had many sons. They were like the stars of the sand on the seashore. I don't know. All right. It's a number that no man can count in Revelation chapter 7 from every tribe, tongue, nation, and language. All right, let's keep reading. By faith, Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac. And he who had received the promises was in the act of offering up his only son, of whom it was said, Through Isaac shall your offspring be named. He considered that God was able even to raise him from the dead, from which, figuratively speaking, he did receive him back. Okay? Now, we know what the story is, right? Go back to Genesis 22 for a moment, and let's read the story. The offering up of Isaac. And I'm going to mention this Sunday morning, but I'll mention it here. I'm not going to talk a lot about it Sunday morning, but in John chapter 1, I think it's verse 18, where it says, No one has seen God except the only God. Oh, no, no it's in verse 17 where it says, um, Jesus is the one and only Son, full of grace and truth. It's a Greek word called it's monogenes. It's it's where we get the it's where the King James translates begotten, only begotten, which is a weird word nobody uses, but it really means unique, one of a kind, only. Jesus is the unique, only one of a kind Son. Now, when we read this in in Genesis chapter twenty two, I want you to notice the wording that the writer, that Moses uses to describe Isaac. Was Isaac the only son of Abraham? up to this point. Who was Isaac's older half-brother? Ishmael. But notice the wording here in Genesis 22. After these things, God tested Abraham. Didn't Hebrews say? What did Hebrews? Keep your finger back in Hebrews. By faith, Abraham, when he was tested. Genesis 22.1, After these things, God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham. And he said, Here I am. He said, Take your son, your only son, Isaac. Now, is that true? Okay. As far as biology, it's not. I mean, we're not saying it's not true. But what God, what what God is saying is, Isaac is the son of the promise. Isaac is the son you've been waiting for. Isaac is the one that was born in your old age that you called laughter. He's the one to whom the promise is going to go through. He's the lineage. If there's no more Isaac, there's no more promise. So go kill him. Your one and only son. The son that means everything to you. The son you've been waiting for. The son that was given to you in your old age. Go take him up the mountain and kill him. Now, this is a test. Abraham, go to the land of which I will tell you. Okay, I can handle that. I'll, I'll wander around for a little while. Abraham, go down here and do some things. Abraham, kill your one and only son. I'm not sure about that, God. I am not sure about that. But notice Abraham's faith. Take your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. So Abraham had a conference with his wife Sarah, and they argued all night long, wondering if they should do this. And they had a convention, wondering if this was the right course of... Are you guys reading the right translation? Anyway, what does it say? 
So Abraham rose early in the morning, saddled his donkey, took two of his young men with him and his son Isaac, and he cut the wood for the burnt offering and arose and went to the place of which God had told him. Any obedience there? Immediate obedience. Do you see any type of um, lack? I, I guess I better, make, I better, I better follow the, the slides here because I'm going to start teaching and preaching. Not. So what was Abraham's response? Again, we see immediate obedience. True authentic faith is marked by immediate obedience to the command of a sovereign God. Abraham rose early in the morning. There's no discussion. There's no evidence of talk with Sarah. There's no family meeting. There's an active obedience to God. He doesn't hesitate or linger, but quickly obeys. He doesn't sleep in and prolong the inevitable. All right, so let's keep moving. On the third day, Abraham lifted, Abraham lifted up his eyes and saw the place from afar. Saw. Then Abraham said to his young men, Stay here with the donkey. I and the boy will go over there and worship and come again to you. And Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it on Isaac his son. And he took in his hand fire and the knife. So they went both of them together. And Isaac said to his father Abraham, My father. And he said, Here I am, here I am my son. He said, Behold, the fire and the wood. But where's the lamb for a burnt offering? Dad, we're going up this mountain. We're going up here to sacrifice. You've got wood in your hand. I'm carrying wood on my back. You've got a little pot of fire. You've got a dagger. This is fun, Dad. I love camping with you. I love going up in the mountains. But there's one thing I don't understand, Daddy. Where's the sacrifice? Now think about those penetrating words if you're Abraham. What could he have said? It's you, Isaac. But notice what he says there in verse 8. Abraham said, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering, my son. So they both of them went together. When they came to the place of which God had told him, Abraham built the altar there and laid the wood in order and bound Isaac his son and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. Then Abraham reached out his hand and took the knife to slaughter his son. But the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham, he said, here I am. He said, do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him. For now I know that you fear God, seeing you have not withheld your son, your only son from me. And Abraham lifted up his eyes and looked. And behold, behind him was a ram caught in the thicket by his horns. And Abraham went and took the ram and offered it up as a burnt offering instead of his son. So Abraham called the name of that place the Lord will provide. And it is said to this day on the mount of the Lord, it shall be provided. Now, in the Hebrew language, especially in Genesis, there are many play on words that bring out deeper meanings of the story. And here we have one of those moments with the Hebrew word to see, ra'ah. Okay, so Hebrew word ra'ah. It means to see. Or does it? It's a flexible word. It means to see, or it means to see to it. What's the difference between to see or to see to it? What does see mean? I just, I just look and saw. What does it mean? If somebody says, hey, I can't see because you're sitting in front of me, what does that mean? I can't physically see. What if somebody says, hey, um, can you make sure that the laundry's done before I come home? Okay, I'll see to it. What's the difference? 
One is a promise made that you're going to accomplish something. So this word means to see or to see to it. How do we translate to see to it? Provide. So does it mean the Lord will see or does it mean the Lord will provide? And the answer is yes. It's a play on words. It means both. Let's, let's see how it unfolds. Let's raha how it unfolds. God sees Abraham. Now I know that you have faith because I have seen. Look what he says there. Verse um, 12. Seeing that you've not withheld your only son. I see your faith, Abraham. Now this doesn't mean that God didn't know, isn't omniscient or didn't know what was going on. Remember this is a test. And what does Abraham do? Does Abraham pass the test? Yes. And God lets Abraham know that he's passed with flying colors. I've seen you pass the test, Abraham. And then there's the ram in the thicket. So Abraham's in the act of killing his son. The angel of the Lord says, don't do it. I've seen your faith, Abraham. You've passed the test. And then he hears the, the, you know, the, the sound behind him. and He turns around. There's a ram in the thicket. And notice what it says there in verse 15. I'm sorry, verse 14. The Lord will provide, as it is said to this day, on the mount of the Lord, it shall be provided. That should be verse 14, not verse 15. Now, the Hebrew word used there is ra'ah, which can mean both to see it or see to it or provide. Which one is it? Does the Lord see Abraham's faith or does the Lord provide? And the answer is yes. I think it has a double meaning. God sees Abraham's faith, but God also provides a substitute for his son. Now, let's talk about Abraham's faith for a moment. Let's go back to Hebrews. That's the story. You guys were very familiar with that story. And I love... Well, actually, um, yeah, one of the things I really like about, about Hebrews 11 is that you've got the stories in Genesis and Exodus, you've got the stories, but then the writer of Hebrews gives commentary like to fully, more fully explain the story under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. And that's what he's doing here. Verse 17, By faith, when he was tested, offered up Isaac, and he who had received the promises was in the act of offering up his only son of whom it was said, through Isaac shall your offspring be named. Now here's the first thing we see about authentic faith in Abraham, in this act of offering up his son. True, authentic Christian faith sacrifices all for the glory of Christ. I want to give you a nuance in the original language, I believe, shed some light on Abraham's faith. When it says there, by faith, when he was tested, offered up Isaac... The tense used for offered is in the perfect tense, which is a weird tense to use in this context. It's not the tense used for just simple action in the past tense. That would be aorist. It's really used to heighten Abraham's faith. It was used to show that he was doing the impossible. It was an emphatic, almost otherworldly type of faith, a deeply sacrificial faith, a strong faith, a resolute type of faith. And it's interesting, I, I, I mentioned this earlier, that he was offering up Isaac, who was Abraham's one and only son. 
And I got ahead of myself because I guess I do have this in the notes. John 1.14, the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory. Glory is of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Isaac was the only son of Abraham. Jesus was the only son of the Father. We also see it in John 3.16, For God so loved the world that He gave His only, His one and only Son, that whoever believes in Him should not perish but have eternal life. And then we also see it in 1 John 4.9, In this the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent His only Son into the world so that we might live through Him. So, it's this faith that sacrifices. Abraham was willing to sacrifice Isaac because God had called him to do it. That was an extreme sacrifice. But you may ask yourself, was Abraham's faith a blind faith? Did he just do it because he just blindly jumped off and took a leap? And what had, what had God revealed to Abraham over time? Time after time after time, God had proved himself faithful to Abraham. And this was the final test. And so if God has been faithful time after time after time, is he not going to be faithful this time? So Abraham's faith in this test was a cumulative faith, I think. If God maybe would have asked him back in Genesis 12, he probably would have had a different response than Genesis 22. But he's had years walking with the Lord understanding what faith in the Lord was, that it was a, a sacrificial type of faith. But here's the second thing we know. The second thing we see from Abraham is that true, authentic faith actually reasons. Because let's just ask a very simple question, a very important question. If you're a parent, why in the world would Abraham even offer Isaac? Makes no sense at all. It was repulsive. It was painful. It was the deepest expression of sacrifice. Why would he do it? Is he just being fatalistic? Well, God just must want me to sacrifice my kid. That's what God asked me to do. Look at verse 19. He considered that God was able even to raise him from the dead. He considered. It's an important word there. The original language means to reason, to calculate, to deliberate, to seriously consider, to be convinced based upon the facts. Think about it. Abraham thought to himself, the writer of Hebrews is saying, God's been faithful, God's been faithful, God's been faithful. He's not asking me to do something, he's not going to be faithful. I can count on God, I'm reasoning, I'm deliberating, I'm doing this because I know God's been faithful in the past. And what is Abraham reasoning? What does it say there? He reasoned that God was able. God was powerful to do something. Something miraculous. What was Abraham's thought process? Even if I kill Isaac, God can bring him back to life. Now, had Abraham ever seen a resurrection? No, but he had the faith God could do it. And it says there figuratively he did, in a sense, bring him back from the dead even though he didn't die. I want to go back to the Genesis narrative for a moment. And I always, I read past this quickly, but there is a clue that Moses puts in chapter, or in verse 5 that will tell you Abraham's faith. But we often just read right over it. Look at Genesis 22, 5. 
Then Abraham said to his young men, Stay here with the donkey. I and the boy will go over there and worship and come again to you. Isaac and I are, coming, are going up the mountain, and we're both coming back down the mountain. Now, wait a minute. How come we're both coming back down the mountain? Didn't God call me to go up there and kill Isaac? What does it tell us in the Genesis narrative that Abraham was thinking? Even if I kill Isaac, somehow God's going to bring him back to life. He's going to come down the mountain with me. And the writer of Hebrews says that. He says, Abraham considered that God was even able to raise him from the dead, which figuratively he did receive him back. And in Genesis 22.8, what does Abraham say? God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering, my son. That's faith. Now, Abraham wasn't fatalistic. Kasarah, kasarah, God's going to do what he's going to do, so I don't have to really worry about it. But he also wasn't like testing God by like, going halfway and not going all the way. What does it say? Abraham was in the very Abraham was going to do it. Now he could have waited there and said, "Okay God, I know you're coming. I know you're coming." What does he do? He's about to slit Isaac's throat. And and the angel of the Lord stops him. But even if Abraham had slit Isaac's throat, what was his thought process? He considered. He knew God would raise him from the dead. His one and only son. Romans four seventeen through 18 says this, As it is written, I have made you the father of many nations, talking about Abraham, in the presence of the God in whom he believed, who gives life to the dead and calls into existence the things that do not exist. In hope, he believed against hope that he should become the father of many nations. As he had been told, so shall your offspring be. So here's the question for you. Will God ever call me to sacrifice what is most important to me? Well, that's just for Abraham. God's never going to call me to sacrifice my kid on top of Mount Moriah and slit his throat. No, God's not going to call you to do that. That's a, that's a, that's a one-in-a-lifetime act in redemptive history that carries the lineage of Jesus through the Bible. You're not going to be called to do that. But my question is, will God ever call you to sacrifice something that's important to you? Before you answer that, let's let Jesus answer that for us, okay? So let's go to Luke 14, 25-33. Luke 14. We may actually finish tonight or get close. Listen to the words of Jesus and, and just ask yourself, does, does Jesus, our Lord and Savior, ever ask us to sacrifice that which is most important to us? just like God asked Abraham. Now, it may not be going up on Mount Moriah and slitting the throat of your one and only son, obviously. But listen to the words of Jesus in Luke 14, 25 and following. Now great crowds accompanied him, and he turned and said to them, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. For which of you desiring to build a tower does not first sit down and count the cost, whether he has enough to complete it? Otherwise, when he has laid a foundation and is not able to finish, all who see it will begin to mock him, saying, This man began to build and was not able to finish. Or what king going out to encounter another king in war will not sit down first and deliberate 
whether he's able with 10,000 to meet him who comes against him with 20,000. And if not, while the other is yet a great way off, he sends a delegation and asks for terms of peace. So therefore, any of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. Does that sound like sacrifice? Now obviously, Jesus is not calling us to literally hate our family. But what's he saying? If there's any person, if there's anything, if there's any affection, if there's any job, if there's any idol that takes allegiance over me, in sense you need to hate it. And you need to renounce it. And you need to sacrifice and give it up, giving up your own life in order to follow me. Take up your cross and follow me. And he says, sit down and deliberate it. It's a cost. Just like building a tower. If you're going to really build a tower, if you're going to build a building, you better sit down and think about the cost, the materials, the blueprints, if you're going to be able to finish it. Because if you have a half-built tower, everybody's going to walk by and say, well, that's stupid. There's this big building in Colorado Springs, on the very north end of Colorado Springs. It was this big hotel that they built, I think, like two years ago, and it's just sitting empty. They didn't have enough money to finish it. And it's like you can see it from the highway. It's up there by New Life Church. And so everybody's like, great, there's this big, there's this big hotel and it's empty. That's what Jesus is saying. Everybody's going to drive by that and say, that's stupid. Or a king that's going to go to war. When you go to war, you've got to think about your, 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 your munitions and your, your weapons and your, 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 um, your troops and enough food and all that stuff. You don't, just, you don't make the decision lightly. You deliberate. You think. You count the cost. Because what Jesus is asking you to do is to give up all to follow him. So let's ask some gospel-centered questions here. Where in the world do we get the power or the motivation or strength to abandon all for Jesus? This is where a lot of modern preaching goes haywire. Because here's what happens a lot of times. You hear a lot of preaching that says, just go live for Jesus. Abandon all for Jesus. Be radical for Jesus. Give up all for Jesus. And people just tell you to do that. And you're like, okay, I'm, I'm excited. I can't do that. And you may do it for a day and you feel like a failure. Here's the call to follow Jesus. The call to follow Jesus can only be accomplished as we look to Jesus and the power we have from Jesus in the gospel. Now, think about the parallels between Isaac and Jesus for a moment. You've probably thought about these. Both had miraculous, unbelievable births that many would laugh at. Jesus born of a virgin. Isaac born to two old people both carried wood on their backs up a mountain to their death both willingly underwent the knife of their fathers as an obedient sacrifice but here's the one difference while isaac never died and came back to life it was a prefiguring that's what the writer of hebrews says it figuratively it was prefiguring of what Christ would do when he died on the cross and rose again. Isaac was spared death from the hands of his father because of a substitute. Genesis twenty-two thirteen, Abraham lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, behind him was a ram caught in the thicket by his horns. And Abraham went and took the ram and offered it up as a burnt offering. What's the key word there? Instead of his son. Instead, 
A sacrifice was offered instead or in the place of his son. This is the first time in the Bible we really see concretely the concept of a substitutionary atonement. One dying in the place of another. So let me take you to Romans. And this is where we'll close tonight. Romans 5, 6-9. For while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows His love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have now been justified by His blood, much more shall we be saved by Him from the wrath of God. Look at the words there. We were weak, we were ungodly, we were under God's wrath. We were sinners, but yet Christ chose to die in our place. And Romans 8.32 says this, He who did not spare His own Son, but gave Him up for us all, how will He not graciously also give us all these things? Now, God spared Isaac, did He not? Did Isaac die? No, He was spared A ram died in the place. Was Jesus spared? No, Jesus died in our place. And what does this verse say? This is an important verse in Romans. Because it tells us what flows out of the cross. What does it say? God did not spare His own Son. He gave Him up for us all. So in the cross, because Christ died for us, what does God give us on account of the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ? He graciously gives us all Things. Now the question is, what are the, what are the all things that God gives us through the cross of Christ? They're the promises that flow from the gospel to us who believe. These all things are the power, the grace, the stamina, the encouragement, the love, the energy, and the powerful presence of God in our lives to have the faith that God, that pleases God. So it all comes back to looking to Jesus and the cross and what flows from the cross. So the only way you can give up all and follow Jesus is because Jesus gives you the strength to give up all and follow Him. And when you fail and don't do it, you go to Him to find forgiveness and He gets you right back up on your feet and you you follow Him because of His grace in your life.